Hello, and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield College in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. All right, my name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Andrew Davis. We're at Nicholson Library at Linfield College. It's July 25th, 2018. And Andrew will start you off by asking why wine? Why wine? Um, I've always been excited about wine. There was always a jug of really cheap wine in the fridge growing up. and. Um, while it never really excited me, it was always there. It was always a presence. And I think the game changer for me was um, a merchant in a, I was working as many college students do in a, in a coffee house and a, a local merchant next door was a wine merchant and she would make sure that I came over to the tastings and she exposed me to wines that were markedly better than <laughs> what was in the fridge growing up sure. and that was very exciting to me. Um, I think more than that even though was that, that spurred the interest in quality wine but what, it, what really grabbed me was uh, on a trip to New Zealand uh, working on organic farms at one point there was not much happening on the farm I was at, and the owner said, well, the next door neighbor needs some help picking scrapes, would you mind helping them? I jumped at the opportunity and said, sure, and then that, that winemaker said, my neighbor needs help uh, with, with bottling, and then somebody else said, this other neighbor needs help with bird netting, <laughs> or something like that, and pretty soon I'd gotten to know all of the local winemakers, and um, it was just a wonderful group of people. They all seemed happy, and I thought, man, this is what I need to be doing. Sure. So did you grow up in Oregon, or how did you end up in, in Oregon? No, I grew up in the great grape-free state of Montana. <laughs> and came out here um, on a recommendation of a friend. Really? Just for, for wine, or just on a recommendation of music? Okay. <laughs> so tell us about getting here and then sort of finding the wine industry here. Uh, well, that was basically what I just said was the, oh, okay. the came out here and eventually I, I ended up going to uh, U of O and then ultimately OSU. Okay. Um, but bef in between those two universities, there was that trip to New Zealand, okay. which really opened the door. Sure. Okay. So um, when you decided to get into wine um, or decided that might be your process, what was your next step after, after that New Zealand trip? The next step was working in a wine shop, and although it was a fine education, it did not cut it. Um, I wanted to get my fingers dirty. I needed to get more involved. It needed to be more than just pushing bottles. So at that point, I took the leap and went back to New Zealand to get a postgraduate degree in viticulture and enology from Lincoln University. And then you got into the Oregon wine industry at some point. So how did that happen? Um, I was convinced that I wanted, I did not want to be somewhere making warm climate wine. So making cool climate wines has always been my goal. Um, and 
after studying in New Zealand and doing a vintage there, I would have loved to have stayed, but there were uh, the business opportunities were slim. There was mm -hmm. lots more winemakers than there were positions in New Zealand, um, and I'd already fallen in love with Oregon, so I was more than happy to come back here and follow my dream of becoming a winemaker and the, knowing that I wanted to work with sparkling. Mm -hmm. First place I went to was Argyle. So. And why did you know sparkling? Why, what was it about sparkling wine that, that drew you in? Have you ever seen someone with a glass <laughs> of bubbles that didn't have a smile on their face? It's lovely. Um, not only is it so much fun, but it's also probably the most technical of wines to make. And for that, it was endlessly rewarding, endlessly challenging, um, exciting. Uh, it's a labor of patience and love that has enamored me for years. <laughs> So you mentioned you went to Argyle. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so who are some of the people you worked under? Who are some of the mentors in, the, in your early days in the industry? Well, obviously, Rollin Souls. Um, funny first story is that I showed up fresh out of Lincoln in New Zealand. I'd had a little experience, but not much. But I had huge student debts. And so wanted to come in, hoping to come in to Argyle slightly higher than Hose Puller. Um, so I went in, and at the time there was a, the winemaker there was, along with Rollins Souls, was Willie Lunn, an Australian, and um, so I went in in slacks and a nice shirt and fancy shoes to, and my diploma to say that, I, you know, I've, I've got the experience, I'm dedicated, I want to do this, and true to Australian form, he said, all right, well, job's yours. There's a hundred barrels out there. If you go start washing them this very minute, the job's yours. <laughs> so I think that day I ruined a pair of slacks and a pair of shoes and a nice shirt, but I got the job <laughs> and was there for uh, nearly a decade. So tell me about working with, with Rollin and Willie and kind of uh, sort of the, the process of, of going from student with some experience to mm -hmm. winemaker. Um, it was incredible. It was a wonderful education, and I got to see with them um, every aspect of winemaking at the Argyle facility, the stills, the sparklings, mm -hmm. and um, with the dedication to commit to be there for some time, I slowly but surely took on every aspect of the job from um, the most basic tank cleaning through to bottling, through to sales, through to organizing and managing a winery. So it was a, a, a really a great experience for me to um, be able to take the time to fully learn what it means to manage a winery and the making of wine from the humble features through to the more technical aspects. Sure. So you mentioned that sparkling attract, is attractive to you because of the technical aspects of mm -hmm. it. Was there a favorite part of the, of the process of being in a winery? Was it a favorite part of your year or a favorite part of your day? Oh, uh, well, obviously tasting trials are always <laughs> fun. Um, and I think, yes, I think the last, the last phase in sparkling has always been my favorite, the uh, dosage trials. It's the last opportunity that the winemaker has to put their stamp on a wine. So it's, um, you've made a base wine, you've assembled a cuvee, you've managed to get it in bottle and get it to sparkle. And right 
after whether it's two years, three years, five years, or 10 years, you finally are getting this product ready to go to market. And it's the last opportunity you have to put the finishing touch on it and make an impression as a winemaker. Hmm. So yeah, that's always been exciting to me. So what's your winemaking philosophy? Um, wines, I mean, this is a generic answer, but wines should express a place and a time. And um, I think that's why I'm excited about cool climate wines is that more so than some of the warmer climate regions, every year is different. Mm -hmm. um, a warm year in Oregon makes a decidedly different wine than a cool year in Oregon. And the difference between a warm year and a cool year could be just one single vintage. One year you could have an exceedingly hot vintage and pick earlier than anything else. And the, another vintage you could be a month and a half later in your picking, whereas uh, many wine regions in the world don't have that kind of swing. So we get very interesting wines. They're very different year to year, and mm -hmm. it keeps it exciting and interesting. Sure. So um, for me, the philosophy there is to respect that and do no harm. Um, but I am not necessarily dogmatic about um, maybe the natural wine movement or no additives. Um, keep it as, as, try and retain the purity of the wine at all costs. Does your philosophy change when it comes to sparkling wine since you're doing much more to the wine than just sort of leaving it? With the processes, does that change your philosophy or are you still trying to be as? A little bit. Um, by necessity, there are some interventions that you have to make. It's very, very difficult to do native ferments during a secondary fermentation just because um, you need something that's uniquely equipped to handle the difficulties involved in a secondary fermentation. So um, for me, it's not really possible to do a, a native ferment secondary. Um, it's also, you, you're almost forced by the nature of the wine to have to sterile filter and you have to be very much, much more analytical in mm -hmm. making sure that you are cold stabilized than you maybe are with still wine. So there is a little bit more intervention and, and to make a great wine, I'm, I'm very okay with that. <laughs> so eventually you became the winemaker at Argyle. Mm -hmm. um, what, uh, wh why did you leave? What, what happened next? Um, like I said, I'd been there for a, a number of years. Um, I got there in 2003. Um, I saw, I bottled the warm year 2002s. I saw the 2003 vintage come and go. I was there as the 2004 vintage came on. and It was exceedingly hot at the beginning of the 2004 vintage. And I kept wondering what this cool climate was that people were talking about. <laughs> so I had the opportunity to um, take on a good position in Ontario, Canada. So did that for two years and realized the error of my ways and came back. And at about that time, there was a little bit of a transition going on at Argyle. Mm -hmm. And so I was able to come back in, thankfully, both Willie and uh, Rollin were eager to have me back. And I was able to slide back into a more winemaking position than I had before. Mm -hmm. um, but I knew that eventually Argyle was on a path to growing larger and larger and I wanted to work on something a little smaller eventually. So um, I wanted to take, after seven years there, I wanted to take on something a little bit more smaller scale and a little bit more personal. So that was my rationale for jumping ship. 
and you came up at that point with, with Radiant. I did. I jumped ship before I fully figured out what I was doing. <laughs> um, I leapt before I looked and I realized that as much as I wanted to work with sparkling wine, um, I thought maybe I could consult or take on a small project, but in doing so, I realized that there were some severe limitations. People that were interested in doing sparkling and said, well, yes, I'm interested in doing this, but I don't have the equipment, or I'm interested in doing this, but I really am in intimidated by the process of putting things away for three years and not necessarily knowing exactly what I was doing up to that point. And while I could talk them through the latter one, not having the equipment was a real obstacle and sure. I saw that that was going to be the biggest obstacle for the industry and started thinking about why was there only a handful of producers in Oregon. I mean for for countless years we'd been talking about cool climate. Um, we've been preaching that gospel that we are cool climate here in the Willamette and what's more cool climate than sparkling and we'd already proven that uh, exceptional sparkling wines could be made here, mm -hmm. why weren't more people doing it? Um, and I realized that th those pitfalls were um, somewhat a lack of expertise, but that was easily managed. It was the lack of equipment. And if you were a producer that was looking to produce, say, under two or 3,000 cases, uh, the purchase of that equipment really didn't pencil out with the bean counters. Sure. And so um, it, was, it was too onerous to overcome that hurdle and try and make money at it at the same time sure. for producers. So either they were doing it um, very, very small scale where everything was done by hand or they weren't doing it. And I wanted to see that rectified. So you said you kind of you kind of left before you looked. Uh, so you had this kind of a kind of a base of an idea. How did it come to fruition? How did you kind of flesh it out? Well, that was it. I, I, I wanted to work with sparkling. I wanted to see more. I knew we had the potential, but well, how to make that happen, I wasn't sure. And as I started talking to people and started to more fully realize the obstacles there, um, I realized that if this was going to happen, I just needed to take that leap of faith that there was enough people out there that really wanted to make sparkling mm -hmm. that if you build it, they will come. So um, thankfully, with the help of a very good local bank that <laughs> believed in what I was doing, I was able to purchase the equipment and um, hope that they would come. And so when you say they will come, how exactly does it work? How, how, do you, how do you sell what you have to people and how, do they, how does the process work in terms of your role in, their, in making wine? Um, it, was, it, it was a simple idea and it's an idea that's been, I'm, I'm not inventing anything here, it's been done. If you look towards um, champagne, sort of our closest analog would be the grower champagne movement in Champagne, where uh, many of the producers whose families for generations had been growing grapes and then selling them to the larger houses had decided either to hold some back or stop selling to the bigger houses entirely so that it can make their own wine, where they're making wine not from many, many, many lots, but quite often from one or two parcels that they own. Um, and they were facing the same challenges where at 
a few hundred to maybe a couple thousand cases, um, the concept of trying to buy all of that equipment, even though they own the vineyards, even trying to buy all that equipment themselves was onerous. So what happens there is, well, all of the, the grand marks obviously have their own equipment. The smaller producers um, work together and each commune, each village or each region has somebody that can get the wine to bottle and then disgorge it down the road for them. Uh, and I thought that that was a wonderful idea and something that needed to happen here. Uh, there's analogs in California as well mm -hmm. where smaller producers are able to come together and um, create their product. And so that was my idea of trying to make that happen here. And when I looked at the reality of what was going to be happening here, I realized that uh, sparkling producers were going to be charging the same amount that they were charging for their upper tier Pinot Noirs. And, you know, that's 40 to $70. That puts it in the same realm as grower champagne mm -hmm. or Grandmark champagne. Um, and when you're charging that, you need to be providing a, a comparable quality level. And so, the thought process there was, okay, if that's going to be the case, what I need to do is ensure that all the producers can hit that mark. So um, giving them the right advice to not stumble over any of the easy obstacles, mm -hmm. the easy mistakes that can be made, uh, make sure that none of them make those easy mistakes so that the wine comes out excellent every time. But also, the first big thing that I realized is that they didn't want to be sloshing wine around between them and me. Um, what needed to happen is, as much as I was loathed to become a mobile bottler, I needed to go out to them. Mm -hmm. So each producer can make their own base wine in their own cellars, keep it as immaculate as they can there, and then instead of having to then truck it off to somewhere else, pump it, slosh it, um, I show up there and they can keep it in their own cellars so that it maintains the highest quality. Sure. So tell me a little bit about, I'm just curious about sort of, once you decided mobile was the way you had to mm -hmm. go, tell me about the setup for that and kind of how you were thinking in terms of logistic, logistically. Like I said, I didn't want to do this, <laughs> so I made it as stupidly simple as possible, which meant two machines, a bottle filler and a crown capper. Um, and as simple as that seems, it was not possible before for a couple of reasons. Most of the bottling lines did not have crown caps, and that's how sparkling is finished prior to uh, disgorging the yeast. When it's going through its secondary fermentation and aging, it's finished with a crown cap. So having that available was somewhat unique. The other idea was that most of these bottling lines really do not want live culture put through their system. They want everything going in there to be sterile so that the next client on gets also gets sterile bottling. In my case, everything is just the opposite of that. It's been inoculated, there is live yeast, mm -hmm. so my equipment is somewhat unique in that I'm constantly putting live culture through it. Um, it means a, a higher degree of sterilization and uh, prep before bottling, but um, that does set it apart. Sure. And so that's the first step. Um, and that it's because it's so simple, it's a relatively small thing. I was able to get into um, tighter spaces than the bigger bottling trucks were. It's very convenient and it's easy for me mm -hmm. um, to pull around. 
So tell me about the reaction of people as you were kind of broaching this idea to, to wineries and winemakers and, and how you grew the business. Um, thankfully, I had been in the business for many years, knew the winemakers. Most of them, a number of them had come and approached me earlier with interest. So I knew that there was some interest there. So it was a matter of reaching out and talking to the people I already knew. Um, Th with that, they had the assurance. They knew who I was and what I'd done and that I wasn't going to screw up their wine. So that, that was an easy transition that the knowledge of who they were going to be working with was already there. Um, and at least for a number of them, I knew that there was interest. So it was just, okay, we can do this now. Would you like to? Sure. And so it was a real easy sell. Um, it wasn't like there was someone new to the valley coming in and trying to promote something new. It was someone that they already knew trying to shepherd them along with something they already wanted to do, just didn't have the, the ability to do so. Um, uh, with, in 2013, I had a small group of people. Uh, it, it took me longer, obviously, um, every startup has its hurdles and there's always, never happens as quickly as you think it will. Um, so we were sort of late to the game, but I still had, uh, I think, eight producers in 2013. And it was from them that word of mouth grew um, quickly. And I had hoped that I could get, I don't know, 10 to 15 producers in five years to the tune of maybe 10,000 cases being produced. And that would be enough for me to, um, realize enough profit to stay in business. Mm -hmm. um, and that was my goal. By the second year, I had already exceeded that and um, was well on my way to growing larger than that. So uh, I think that speaks to the desire of the Valley to be making bubbles. Yeah. So uh, that was kind of, it was a soft start. Uh, I, I had had a few people in mind. I had, they had interest already. I wasn't selling them anything new. Um, it was just letting them do what they wanted to do. And that was the goal. I w I'm not here to put my thumbprint on wines. It's just to facilitate others to make great wines. Sure. So obviously, it's not, no, no coincidence that the rise of your business is also the rise of Oregon sparkling wine, which is booming right now. Why is sparkling wine good for the Oregon wine brand? Um, Again, coming back to the notion that we've, we've been preaching this cool climate wines for a long time. Um, and we've kind of settled down on one red, Pinot Noir, uh, arguably two whites, maybe three, Chardonnay and Pinot Gris. Um, but when you have two of those champagne varietals already in your book, it makes sense to expand, and if you want to grow beyond a couple still wines, it just makes sense in, 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 when you're in a region that can do it so well mm -hmm. to incorporate it. Sure. So I think it's been a long time coming, and people have played with sparkling. They just haven't been able to get fully into it because of the hurdles and obstacles. Um, since the earliest days of the Oregon wine industry, there's been bubbles. Uh, Artibury Marsh. Uh, made sparkling in the late 80s, I believe. Rob Stewart has been making it for 20 years. Um, it's been around. Kramer Vineyards have been making bubbles, but they've all been quietly been on the side. They haven't really been able to get into the spotlight. Um, and I think that if 
what's happening now is critical mass. I mean, Argyle and Soder have been doing an excellent job with their sparklings, but when it's only one or two brands, you don't build an industry around mm -hmm. it. People don't globally say, oh my God, that Oregon sparkling is great. They might note the, the exceptions, but they, mm -hmm. as a general, I, general notion, they aren't recognizing the region for sparkling. And it takes a certain number of producers making quality products to then be recognized. And that's really what I wanted to see. I believe that we have the potential to make um, world-class sparkling wine here in Oregon. I think that if you look around the globe, you've got an old world icon and a new world icon equivalent, stylistically different, mm -hmm. but um, at, a, a, at a, a same quality point. If you think of Bordeaux, um, that's an icon for Cabernet that in the new world might be um, the equivalent of Napa Cabernet. Yes, they're two very different beasts, but they are comparable in quality, if not necessarily style. When you think of Burgundy in the old world, in the new world, you've got probably Oregon as the new world icon. Mm -hmm. um, with sparkling, there is no new world icon. You have champagne. And everyone, every region in the world that grows makes bubbles to some degree. Um, but none of them have necessarily met that quality that you see coming out of champagne. And I, I truly believe that in time, Oregon can do that. We can't do it overnight. It's got to start somewhere. And I think that that's what's happening. We've laid the groundwork with the pioneers. And now this is sort of that second wave coming on, uh, building diversity, um, building exposure. And my goal would be that in 20, 30, 40 years, when people are thinking sparkling um, for a great event, they don't necessarily reach for champagne. They think, oh, champagne's great, but I prefer Oregon. Um, that day isn't here yet, but I think it could come. Sure. I'd like it to come. <laughs> of course. It would be great. Speaking of champagne, uh, I'm curious about the, and you may, you may not have a lot of expertise in this, but I'm curious about sort of the marketing of sparkling wine without being able to call it champagne. I'm curious if there's a, if there's a, a knowledge gap there among drinkers of sparkling wine to know that it's the same thing as champagne, just from a different region, or if, there, if there's an issue there, um, or if people pretty much know it's the same thing. Um, there is a little bit of a knowledge gap, um, and that is a challenge. Um, I think that's changing. I think that more and more people are realizing that Chablis is not just generic white wine, it's actually wine from a place. Mm -hmm. It represents a place. And that same knowledge is a little bit further behind maybe uh, with sparkling and champagne, but um, it's a testament to how well they've marketed their product. <laughs> um, it's ubiquitous, the name says something, and sparkling wine doesn't have that cachet quite yet. Sure. Just the name sparkling wine. Um, but I think people realize that champagne is a place and an item and that, that an analog is made elsewhere just as an analog to Burgundy is Oregon Pinot Noir. And um, that, that understanding is coming. Along with that understanding, there's a lot of gray area in sparkling wine that the consumer needs to wrap their head around and doesn't quite yet, I think the knowledge base isn't quite there. Um, I think that the average consumer's 
of of wine is is pretty smart as that wine comes from grapes. Mm -hmm. A red wine comes from grapes. They may still believe that you have to stomp on them, but the grapes get squished, they go into a barrel, and you taste the barrels, and maybe you blend the barrels together, and then you put it in a bottle. They can conceptualize that whole process mm -hmm. um, and see it from start to finish, from berry to bottle. With sparkling, uh, they know it comes from grapes, and then there's a gray area and a magic wand, and then it pops. But a lot of what happens in there is still vague, and there's a lot of misconceptions and um, just lack of knowledge there. And part of what I want to do with the Radiant Sparkling Wine Company is a, a, a bit of education around that, because the more you know about a product, the more excited you can be, the more you, you feel a part of it, mm -hmm. if you can understand that process. Sure. How do you go about educating on that, on that level? This is part of it right <laughs> here. Um, um, I'm always happy to talk to whomever about sparkling. It's, it's passion. It's easy for me to babble on about. Um, but I'm, I'm, I'm also working with Chmeketa. I'm on an advisory board there. I'm hoping to get more information in there. Um, I've worked with Linfield in the past and had students come out. I'm always happy to have my clients. And what's, what's been really interesting is um, having my clients bring their staff in. Mm -hmm. Because even though they're making it, uh, maybe folks not outside of the production realm don't fully know the process. So we'll get tasting room staff in when we're disgorging wine. We'll, um, have them in and show them the whole process and it, a light bulb goes off. They see it, they understand it, they're able to get more excited about it, they're able to sell it better, and they're able to s share that passion and knowledge to all the people that come into their tasting rooms. I have to admit that for, when I first saw how Sparkling Wine was made, that was kind of the reaction I had. I was like, wow, this is so cool. It's like, it, it does make it better somehow, like to know, the, yeah. to see the process, see how much labor goes into it, mm -hmm. how, much, how many cool steps there are. Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, so what's the future for, for Radiant then? What do you hope to, you said you've already kind of exceeded your early goals. So mm -hmm. uh, is this a long-term project for you now? Or are you seeing a change in what you're gonna do? Um, absolutely, it's a long-term pro, uh, project for me. It's going to go on. It's, it's certainly got legs. There's passion in the community. I think that now five years in, the word is out of what I'm doing. So. Um, those producers that wanted to be making sparkling, I think pretty much are. Um, and it's not for everyone. It is more labor intensive. It is uh, more technical. It is costly up front. Um, there's a lot of cons against making sparkling, but it's a very exciting product and People are very passionate about it, so there are producers. I don't think every one of the hundreds of wineries in the Willamette are going to start making sparkling, but um, those that would like to pretty much are on board, so I think that I'm going to see natural and incremental and organic growth as these producers sort of ramp up, and maybe they'll be the uh, odd new 
producer that wants to come in and make nothing but bubbles. I, I welcome that. Um, I think that the same way that we had the French come in and somewhat validated our production of Pinot Noir in the Valley, it would be great if the Champenoise came in and did a similar project to, to Main Drouin. Um, that would be wonderful and very exciting. I don't think it's necessary, but I think at some level it certainly would validate the industry. Um, aside from that and seeing that natural growth, I hope to continue to support all of the clients I work with and see them succeed sure. and, and grow naturally. If there were, there are other directions that Radiant could take, um, and maybe that'll happen, but Right now, I'm, I'm content and happy to watch everyone succeed with their programs. Sure. Talking about sparkling wine, you, you talked about kind of the growth in the valley and what you sort of see happening there. Do you see a similar growth happening throughout the country? Is this going to be a, a, a new kind of boom of sparkling wine production and, and uh, consumption? Or is Oregon going to kind of be the standout there? Of course, Oregon's going to be the standout. <laughs> um, no, I do. I think that there is an increase in production globally, nationally, regionally, all of those, just because consumer demand is there. Where there is consumer demand, there's production. Um, can every region and area make it equally well? Absolutely not. Um, is Walla Walla exceptional sparkling production area? No. Is uh, Southern California? No. Um, there's something uh, inherent in sparkling that is about cool climate. And if you don't have it, you're never going to make that world-class wine. So I think that while more and more sparkling is being made around the globe and around the nation, around the region, I think that you will see Oregon and the Willamette stand out because it is climatically incredibly well suited to it. So we're 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 probably while the press is coming up on sparkling in general, it's a great time to be making in Oregon because that's where the quality is going to be coming from. Sure. So to you, what what makes the Oregon industry special? What makes the Oregon industry wine industry stand out? Um, I think it's, I, you've heard this before in other interviews, but it's the camaraderie of the industry and the ability to work together that is, has made it succeed. Um, as you know, we are a drop in the bucket compared to our neighbors to the north and to the south, yet we have a, a commanding presence in the marketplace. We're, we're acknowledged as an exceptional producer of high quality wines. And I think that that same analog is gonna be the case with sparkling. As the market share grows, there's going to be more producers, and they are already working to help one another to succeed. Sure. So you kind of talked about a little bit about the, the, what you see and you hope in the future and sort of Oregon sparkling wine on par with, with champagne. Mm -hmm. and, um, what, else, what else do you see happening in the Oregon wine industry kind of in general in the next, say, 10 to 20 years? Um... I think it's more of the same. We'll see a natural and organic growth. We're seeing interest from outside coming in as land prices are more affordable here still than other regions. So people are able to see that they're able to make incredible quality wines at 
more reasonable prices. So that's attracting both investors and new startups. Um, I think that with that, you'll see incremental growth. We don't have, I don't think we'll ever be California. We just don't, it's not the um, MO for Oregon wines. I think we'll, we'll remain relatively small with a few exceptions and that, that we won't necessarily see too many new categories of wine come in, but we will see quality and participation increase. We'll see quantities increase slowly, and we'll see this continued camaraderie within the industry, which is, has always helped it. What are some of the challenges you see on the horizon for Oregon wine, or for winemaking in general? Um, I think that we're making a lot of wine now nationally and relatively speaking locally with so many new producers um, the problem is not making great wine it's going to be selling great wine mm -hmm. um, I think as new regions in the world are riding this wave of increased wine consumption there will be a time when that plateaus off or even dips a little to another beverage mm -hmm. um, and when that happens it's going to be very difficult um, Everyone is making more and more and more wine, and selling that more and more wine is going to be the big challenge. I also think moving forward, um, climate. Um, with us being a marginal area, we've got room to um, absorb a little bit of increased heat, but it will change the way we grow and the way the wines we make with increasing global climate change. What advice would you have for someone who wants to join the Oregon wine industry? Uh, jump in, but know that it's a crowded market as is and that there will be, um, the biggest challenge will be selling that wine. Mm -hmm. um, the help is there, the knowledge is there to make great wine, the vineyards are there, the grapes are there. It's a matter of, of getting that wine out. It's a crowded marketplace and it's getting more and more crowded every day. So that's all the questions that I have for you. Uh, is there anything else I should have asked you? Anything else you'd like to mention here at the end? Open forum? <laughs> um, conceptually, we didn't really cover what Radiant does. We only did the front end of it. So let's talk about Radiant, and the, the, the whole process. Okay, so the, the Radiant Sparkling Wine Company um, as I mentioned, was, was started to help facilitate people with the production of sparkling in the valley. I knew as that to achieve the goal of exceptional quality, we needed to be, uh, that first portion needed to be mobile. So with that done, um, on site, the wine is bottled. It's got a live culture in it. The producer has worked with me to add enough nutrients and sugar to ensure that we'll have enough pressure, but not too much. We won't be blowing up bottles. We'll be exactly where we want to be and that they'll um, finish and complete their secondary fermentation. Um, then it's a matter, that fermentation only takes two to three weeks, maybe four weeks, and then it's complete. You've got all the bubbles you're going to get. The sugar has been turned into CO2, it's done. Uh, the really exciting part about Method Champenois Sparkling is that 
period between the yeast finishing its job and when you release it. Mm -hmm. And it's that two, three, five, ten years aging on that yeast that really develops the character, the flavors you're looking for, as well as the tiny, tiny, tiny bubbles. You don't if you were to pop a bubble, a bottle after two weeks, you'd have bubbles like Coca-Cola. They're big, they're gushy, there's no finesse to them. And it's that time and the liberation of proteins from the yeast cells in the bottle that help create a, a matrix in the bottle that keeps the bubble size very small and petite. So all you see is these pinpoints in your glass. Um, and you can't cheat it. There's nothing you can do. You, it just takes time. So. The, that wine that's bottled at the winery after I've ticked the box that says yes it's finished its fermentation they can then move that out to whether they keep it at their own winery or outside storage it just sits um, it sits for those one years two years three years five years ten years and then when when they determine that they want to release it that it's ready at that point it's in bottles it ships really easy so then it's a fixed location in McMinnville where the bottles are returned to me. We take them out of the bins, they go into a riddling machine, yeah. and this is where some of the, I get this all the time from even people within the industry is, oh, how often do you have to riddle the bottles? Well, you just do it once. It's a mechanical process. The little old man of the cellar used to put them in the A-frame racks, twist each bottle in the morning when he came in a quarter turn, and then a, a half turn the opposite direction before he went home. And that rocking motion works all the yeast down into the head where you create a, a dense collection of the yeast in the crown cap. The little old man is a thing of the past. That's a recipe for a carpal tunnel. Um, it's the same mechanical process if you put it into a cage and have the cage do the same movements. Sharp rotation with inclination, counter rotation with inclination, and what took the little old man two to three weeks takes me five days. Um, so providing that service, um, whether it's mechanized or by hand, achieves the same goal. You've brought all the yeast that was in that bottle into a tight little plug in the crown cap and then it's a matter of removing that and that's that that last part of the process of working with the wineries working with the winemaker to put their their final thumbprint on it mm. because you're starting with grapes that are quote unquote underripe they're lean they're tart they're dry almost always you're adding back a small amount of sugar to balance that acidity. So it's working with them to figure out style and balance. Where do they want to be? Do they we want to be really lean? Do they want to be balanced? Do they want to be fuller and richer? And in addition to that, it's you can't put dry sugar into the bottle. You have to have some sort of carrier for that. And I think that that's where the real excitement comes from of trying to find just the right carrier. And in Champagne, that carrier, that vehicle for the dosage is whatever wines they have in their cellar, which is lean, Pinot or Chardonnay generally. Um, in Oregon, we have an advantage over the Champenoise because we have many more things in the cellar to choose from. Um, an example being uh, working with a client on a rosé, it was their first time through, and I said, we're doing dosage with you for the first time, let's explore our options and just shotgun it. And we tried to put in, I said, use every white wine you have. We'll make up a sample dose, it doesn't cost anything, and we'll try all these on the wine. Who would have thought that the preference at the table 
would have been Gruner Veltliner in a rosé, but it brought out a beautiful floral aspect, and it was gorgeous. But that's something that um, our compatriots in, in Champagne just don't have the option of. We have a, a broader palette to choose from to make the right wine for you, the producer. Um, so there's, there's this, this, that's the, the fun part that I get to do with each of the wineries is work with them on developing this dosage. Once that's made up, once we've determined the sweetness level, the carrier, um, the amount of sulfur to add or not add to it, um, then that gets add at, added at disgorgement when that yeast is removed from the bottle, the dosage is added, the final cork and wire cage go on, and it's labeled and it gets packaged up and sent out. They get what they, they've brought me the bottle with yeast in it and a crown cap on it, and then what they receive at the other end is it fully packaged with the capsule and boxed up and beautiful clear wine. That's an amazing process. It is, it's fun. What are some of the biggest um, misconceptions, either among winemakers or among consumers, about that process? What is what you talk, kind of talk about the magic wand earlier? What do people think happens? The biggest one I see is how often do you have to riddle the wine? It's there's a thought that you constantly have to mix these bottles, but no, it's it only happens once. Um, the other is there's uh, an old myth or legend that. The, the dosage commonly has like brandy or cognac. Theoretically, that could still happen. In practice, it really never happens. Um, that's a throwback to 100 years ago in Champagne when the wines were really lean and they used to, um, they would be 10 times as sweet as they are now. And they would also be doped up with brandy to increase the alcohol. So that's as, as our farming has gotten better and we've gotten riper wines and our style and our tastes have changed towards a drier wine, um, that's gone by the wayside. Um, let's see, what else is uh, a misconception? Uh, a lot of people don't understand that there's a crown cap on the bottle to begin with and that just is because the, the oversized beer cap is a better closure than cork. It holds in the pressure better, keeps oxygen out better. Uh, in theory, you could finish a bottle, and a number of producers do finish the bottle by putting a crown cap back onto it, and that's the best closure you could have. Um, but traditionally speaking, the cork goes in after that. Sure. What, with all that, with the amount of time and labor that takes you then, and, and is, there a, is there a cap on how many clients you could have at a time? or? Can you no, keep it's just me manage my growth. Um, <laughs> I, think, uh, I think, though, that the limited size of the valley and the fact that not all producers are going to want bubbles will put a cap on my production. I think that we're nearly there now, and I'm seeing a few more interested parties, but those, like I said before, those that are excited about sparkling and want to get in pretty much have gotten in. I expect to see a couple, a few grow Potentially, and that would be a dream of mine, is that someone was so successful with their program that they're like, that they say that they no longer need my services, they're ready to do it all in-house. That would mean that I succeeded. Sure, I would lose a great client, but that would mean that I succeeded. Sure. Kind of like sparkling wine training wheels kind yeah. of thing. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And, and even um, for producers that find great success with their wines, they may not come to a production level where it makes sense to purchase their own equipment. Um, and even if 
they, some producers grow to a level where it might financially make sense for them to pr buy their own equipment. It might be easier to remain with me because even if they can afford the equipment, it's a matter of operating, it's a matter of floor space. One thing that all wineries always have in, in, in a shortage of is floor space, so some of the equipment takes up a lot of floor space. Sure, sure. Um, so, yeah, I think that would, that would be a, a mark of my success is if I see people going off on their own. Sure. Is there any other kind of, uh, is there any other kind of similar analog job in the industry to yours, like the specialization in one part of the in one part of wine, that you can see like a growth in. Well, the other people who kind of find that little niche. We've seen that in mobile bottling. Uh, there was very few when I started in the industry, and now there's at least four on the road now. And the same way with um, mobile crossflow filtration, that was unheard of early on and when, when I arrived in the industry even, um, which wasn't that long ago. Um, and now it's almost ubiquitous. Uh, and I think, is there, what's the next big thing? Well, if I knew that, I'd be rich. But um, <laughs> I think that there is still more opportunity out there. What will it be? I don't know. Sure. I think um, that between mobile cross-flow filtration, mobile bottling, and the ability to do sparkling wine through all of the processes um, is pretty unique and has allowed growth within the industry and a higher quality wine to be coming out of the industry. Sure. All right. Uh, anything else? I think that's it. Root for brew. Shoot. So, I mean, obviously your passion is for the sparkling wine, but do you have any thoughts of returning and making your own wine under your own label? Um, not entirely. Um, as much as I love making wine, I dislike selling wine. <laughs> um, so this, uh, this setup that I have now uh, feeds my curiosity and feeds my excitement about making wine, especially since early on I had one client that caught me in a moment of weakness and I actually make their wine start to finish. So that's where I get to wear the winemaker's hat still. So I choose the vineyards, I choose how it's made. They've been very generous and given me carte blanche as far as um, anything I want to do. Their caveat was make it exceptional. <laughs> um, so that keeps my creativity and my winemaking um, excitement up, um, and I don't have to sell or market it. <laughs> so um, as long as I, I'm creatively compelled with this, this brand, then I will stick with it and not create one of my own. Well, thank you very much for your time and for your answers and everything. My pleasure. Uh, thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield College. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. And a special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have contributed to these oral history interviews over the years.